this is Robert Esther and welcome to virtualsheetmusic.com and livingpianos.com announcing a series of interviews. Today we have guest artist Jeffrey Beagle who is a brilliant concert pianist. I've known Jeff for many years. As a matter of fact, he studied with my father, Morton Estrin. So we've known each other since childhood. He was a brilliant young pianist at that time and has evolved to one of the world's great concert pianists. Recently, while touring through Southern California, performing with the Pacific Symphony here in Orange County, we had a chance to chat, and I'd like to share this video with you. Very interested in your impressions of this video and how you feel about these, this interview series. Thanks so much for joining me. Once again, Robert Estrin at livingpianos.com and virtualsheetmusic.com. Hi, this is Robert Estrin with a special edition of livingpianos.com and virtualsheetmusic.com. We have a special guest, Jeffrey Beagle, concert pianist, here to perform the Gershwin Rhapsody in Blue and American in Paris with the Pacific Symphony Carl St. Clair's 25th anniversary. And we have him here for an interview session. Jeffrey has played with the Cincinnati Symphony, Milwaukee Symphony, Philadelphia Orchestra, Pittsburgh Symphony, Detroit Symphony, many different orchestras. He's had many concertos written just for him, which we're gonna talk about the significance of that. So welcome, Jeff. It's a pleasure having you here. A pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Thanks. So you excited about your performance tomorrow? Oh, absolutely. Terrific. It's a great orchestra. I've uh, done two performances with them uh, in 2010. We did the world premiere of a new concerto by Richard Daniel Poor, and several months later, a new work by William Bolcom for piano, orchestra, and chorus, and uh, now I'm about to do more standard fare. Fantastic. You know, it's an interesting thing, just so everybody knows, we go way back. Uh, when you were a young kid, you're a few years younger than me, uh, I met you because you were one of my father's very talented piano students. That's right. And he would uh, oftentimes at dinner time, because you had a lesson right after really? our dinner, he goes, you hear that? He's reading that. That's not a piece he learned this week. <laughs> <laughs> so we, with Corin and I, my sister, of course, we would always hear all about you and uh, it was a real mm -hmm. pleasure. And to see how far you've come, of course, you're now at uh, Brooklyn University. Uh, in New York, you do teaching there, yes. you do performing. What I want to talk about today that I think is of real interest to people, the challenges of carving out a career as a concert pianist in, in the United States of America in the 21st century is a tremendous challenge that few people can break through. And I know your business model is really unique and it's really hard to explain it to people because it is such a complex model really that requires so much legwork and phone work and email work. And I want you to describe a little bit about what your activity is and how you manage to have carved out a name for yourself and a career in this incredibly competitive concert market. I think it all started back when I was studying with your father, when he took a piece of music that had literally was hot off the press by Meyer Kupferman. It was in 1973. And he said to me, it's a new piece of music called Sonata Mysticos. I don't have time to learn it. Here, you learn it. <laughs> and I was about 12 years old, <laughs> not even. And I did learn it, but the, the turning point for me, other than my studies of standard repertoire, was this piece of music. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I went to play it for the composer. Yes. And that was mm -hmm. the seed that set the course for the future over several decades up till the present. Mm -hmm. And playing a piece for a composer, especially for 
uh, for Meyer, who wrote it and played it himself, I'm sure, mm -hmm. was an eye-opener to really understand what was beyond the printed page. Right. What really made the composer write what he wrote. And of mm -hmm. course, for us to do that with standard repertoire, we can't ask Beethoven, we can't ask Bach. Right. But to be able to deal with a, a living composer like on that level uh, was an incredible moment mm -hmm. for me at the time. And over the years, I was able to play new works by composers. Perhaps they were commissioned for competitions. Everybody had to play yes. the same piece. And I remember in 1988, it's 20 some odd years ago, I played a Norwegian work by uh, uh, Harald Severud, who was already in his 90s. Mm -hmm. And the piece that I played was the Ballad of Revolt. And he grabbed my arm and he says, do you know what those accent marks are? And every time he would sing it, he would pull my arm. He said those were the gunshots because he experienced wow. World War I. Oh. So these were the gunshots. Had I known that, if I did not meet the composer, probably not. Yeah, yeah. And that led to the latter part of the last decade of the 20th century, where I decided to celebrate the millennium with a new work. And I chose Ellen Tafe Zwillick, who was the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize in music, first woman to receive a Doctor of Musical Arts degree from the Juilliard School. She was already uh, leading the composing program at Carnegie Hall. And I approached her about it, and she listened to my recordings before approving to do it. Mm -hmm and uh, it became the first largest consortium of orchestras put together mm -hmm. to commission a new piece of music for this millennium fantasy. And I guess I got bit by the bug. I well, you've had many concertos written for you where you've actually been proactive going out there and raising money to have a work commissioned. It's yes. just a lengthy process. I mean, from the time you start a, a, an endeavor like this till you're actually on the concert stage playing it is, is years, isn't that it's right? It's two to three years. Two to three yes. years. Yes. And you have to raise the money so the composer can write a work. And I know you've had incredible luminaries and some famous people that you have associations with, like Keith Emerson and Neil Sadaka. But why don't you give a list of some of the composers that you've had the privilege of working with and having works yes. written for you? Uh, Ellen Tate Swillick wrote The Millennium Fantasy, and then 10 years later I uh, went back to Ellen and she wrote Shadows, mm -hmm. another work in three movements for piano and orchestra. Uh, Charles Strauss, who mm -hmm. wrote Annie and Bye Bye Birdie, he was a student wow. of Aaron Copland and Arthur Berger, and Nadia Boulanger. And he went from classical to Broadway, and this piece was wonderful called Concerto America, and it was premiered with Boston Pops in 2002 after 9-11. Uh, Richard Daniel Poor wrote a concerto which I did with Pacific Symphony. Lowell Lieberman, yes. who I went to Juilliard with, he was a composition and piano major. Mm -hmm. And he wrote his third piano concerto for me, which was commissioned by 17 orchestras in the U.S. and one orchestra in Germany, making it, I believe, the first commissioning project of, for an American composer co-commissioned by an orchestra outside of the U.S. Um, and then uh, I went to, I'm trying to remember these, the, the projects, how they went in line, William Bolcombe. And yes. uh, Bill wrote Prometheus based on the uh, mythical character of Prometheus. For, and I asked him for piano, orchestra, and chorus, mm -hmm. so I could play something with Beethoven's choral fantasy. <laughs> and uh, at least nine or ten orchestras co-commissioned that work. And then I commissioned a young composer named Jake Runestad, mm -hmm 
who is quite brilliant, again, for piano, orchestra, and chorus, he decided to pay tribute to veterans. Mm -hmm. And he f became friendly with Brian Turner, who uh, is a poet, quite a brilliant poet, but he uh, survived the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And several of the poems are depicted in this work called Dreams of the Fallen. And the fallen are those who have fallen from society. So he wrote this work for me that's in the process of performing with the commissioning orchestras and choruses. Um, and also Kenneth Fuchs, who mm -hmm. was also at Juilliard when I was there. And Ken is just writing continuously. Sure. So, so we're going to premiere that in 2015. Uh, Jeremy Lubbock wrote a piece for me that I'm premiering next February with Terrific. Moravian University. He's the Jeremy Lubbock wrote all the wonderful arrangements for mm -hmm. Whitney Houston and Barbara Streisand and Celine Dion, and but a very serious composer. So, all these different kinds. So, of what projects. are some of the challenges? Yeah. Of course, playing works that there is no reference. You can't go out and yeah. buy a recording of a concerto that has never been performed before. So, what is it like going out playing these new works compared to playing staples of the repertoire? that uh, have been played hundreds of times, thousands of times before? Well, the good thing is nobody knows them. <laughs> uh, years ago, you didn't have technology, the ability to create an MP3, a demo, a synthesized demo. So you had to go into a rehearsal studio mm -hmm. and put it all together and hear what it sounds like. And that's when the composer would start to create a list of uh, errata, then they would say, well, I don't like this, let's change this, you know, don't do this, maybe don't play the English one there, or, you know, don't double right. up on it, let's set up one player on that. Uh, now, of course, even with Ellen Swillick's Millennium Fantasy, I had, uh, a, 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 it was actually a diskette, a floppy disk that mm -hmm. I was able to use at that time. Uh, and she never liked it, because it was always like, tick, 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 there wasn't quite musical, but I was able to hear from the standpoint of hearing harmony and mm -hmm. rhythm, that was wonderful. Right. So, so at really least here, the first time you get together with the orchestra, at least you have some sense exactly. of the composition. Exactly. Other than just trying to decipher the score, you can actually play with it if you wanted to with the MIDI file, I suppose. Exactly. And the, the quality is much better today. Now, interestingly, I know a lot of uh, pianists playing contemporary will play with the score. And I was just wondering about your observations about the difference between playing with a musical score and playing from memory. What are the pros and cons and your feeling about that? Because I know that the tradition is to play for everything from memory, and yet with incredibly complex modern works, a lot of times people use the score. Yes. And w what is your feeling about uh, the difference there? I think everybody has their own take on it. Uh, mm -hmm. Some people feel more comfortable with the music. Some people feel more comfortable without it. They say, no, I, I, I can play it without seeing it so I could see what I'm doing. Uh, of course, when you're young, you learn like a sponge. Everything mm -hmm. I remember from when I'm young, or I, I remember still, right. newer pieces, if you let them go, they're gone, at least for <laughs> me. Uh, but I think for the contemporary pieces, I like to have this, at least the piano reduction, the piano part mm -hmm. with an orchestral reduction, so I could see what's going on. Right. To me, it's more like chamber music mm -hmm. at that point, and there's more going on than just my part. Sure. Uh, after a while, it does tend to memorize by mm -hmm. itself. Uh, but memory versus using score, everybody has their own take on right. it. And I mean, I will not play Mozart or Bach anymore without score, mm -hmm. because I do 
embellishments in their style I add to it and a lot of them are written into my scores. I see. Do you so, and do any improvisational elements with that or are they all pre-worked out? Uh, most are pre-worked out but mm -hmm. on the spot I will I feel more comfortable now doing Baroque embellishments. Well you have a, a wonderful recording of Bach where uh, for example in the fifth French suite because every movement has A, B, where the A is repeated, the B yes. is repeated, and you always do nice embellishments yes. on the B sections, which I thought was, was terrific. You also uh, have a, you just gave me a disc I have not had a chance to listen to of a Chopin, yes. a beautiful selection of Chopin, and we'll have links here uh, for people to be able to check out sure. your wonderful piano playing. Now, of course, the path you've chosen is a unique one, which wouldn't suit everyone for a couple of reasons. First of all, not everybody is adept at being able to digest incredibly complex scores that have never been played before. Secondly, not everybody's comfortable, you know, getting on the phone and, you know, hounding people for money and all of that <laughs> stuff. But I was wondering if you had any advice for budding young pianists. It's such a crowded field, and yeah. any kind of words of wisdom or, or you know, how should somebody approach? Somebody is accomplished. They have a repertoire. They're wondering how can I get to perform? What, what, what's a pianist to do, and not just pianists, uh, all instrumentalists. I think all, going to the competitions is a good thing for a few reasons. Mm -hmm. If you win, it's great. If you don't, it's okay too. You're meeting new people, you're learning repertoire, you're challenging yourself to a new level. Uh, the judges get to hear you in different competitions, and if you make the finals, you get to play with the orchestra, you get right. to play the con with, for the conductor, uh, maybe they'll have you back. Uh, the administration is there. So it's always good to be seen and heard no matter where as much as possible just to be out there. And you won a competition when you were quite young, didn't you? A few. Mm -hmm. You win a few, you lose a few. Right. Uh, but I met a lot of interesting people at all of these mm -hmm. uh, competitions and they're very stressful but if you could handle it, then it, it's it, it's okay. You know, you can handle the rigors of right. getting out there on stage at your most nervous point and doing it. Uh, another thing that's very important is to make friends when you're at your music schools mm -hmm. with as many people as possible, especially composers. Because mm -hmm. if I look back now, the composers that have been commissioned mm -hmm. to write concertos for me are the composers I met at Juilliard. Right, right. And if you stay friendly with them, you never know one day, mm -hmm. could be one year, 10 years, 15 years, wow. 20 years, and call them up and say, would you like to write a concerto for me or, or work for a triple concerto mm -hmm. for piano, trio, and orchestra? There yeah. aren't too many. And what's your commissioning fee? And then you have to start the process of sure. approaching as many people as you can. I mean, I, my career started before the computers. Yes. So what did we have? A telephone. What did I do? Well, actually, you <laughs> told me a really interesting story years ago about how you won a major competition and you got management with one of the top management firms in the world. Mm -hmm. And then you waited and nothing happened. But you took the bull by the horns. Why don't you tell a little that story? Because I think this is a phenomenal well, story. I f you know, looking back now, when an agency takes on a new artist, the, and they do take on new competition winners, mm -hmm. there are engagements for them to fulfill and contract and set the fees. But I remember being told, you know, don't expect things to happen magically so quickly because people don't grab onto a new artist immediately. Mm -hmm. 
it takes time. And there, no two careers are alike. Right. And I'm sure that the management put my name out there and everything. So I thought it was wonderful to be a competition winner, but to the presenters of orchestras mm -hmm. and recitals, like, oh, he's another one. Mm -hmm. So you know, everybody's conception is different. Uh, but you got on the phone, mm -hmm. in, back before you could look up anything on the computer, you went to directory assistants and started calling conductors randomly at their, at their homes and yeah. said, right, how, well, how I, could that be? Well, <laughs> the reason was because there's, there was repertoire that I was starting to cultivate, like Leroy Anderson's Piano Concerto, mm -hmm. and um, you know, I, I thought it would be interesting, them, interesting for them to be able to hear it straight from me about these pieces. You know, managers are wonderful because they could set your fees, they can contract engagements, but it would be very gauche for them to pick up a phone and call mm -hmm. a conductor personally about an artist at their home. You can't expect them to do that. So, so, and I thought, well, then who's supposed to do that? Me. <laughs> who else? And I thought, see what happens and they were all very kind and very said wow where'd you find that concerto or you know and what else are you playing and what do you can you send me your materials mm -hmm. let me listen to them so you found that just cold calling famous conductors wasn't was not a harrowing experience in fact many of them were receptive to what you had to offer most of the conductors i called were not the uh, conductors who were conducting New York Philharmonic, Boston Symphony, okay. and all this. more of the, uh, the mid-level orchestras mm -hmm. throughout the country that were, they were accessible and they were very friendly and they were looking for a repertoire that was mm -hmm. different, you know, they, how many times can they program the same pieces? Right. And I found that early on that in order to at least make headway into the orchestral scene uh, as a soloist would be to offer pieces that nobody else is offering. Perfect. Whether it's a piece by Leroy Anderson or a new work that was being composed. And I remember one instance a conductor said, well, what's the benefit for me to have my orchestra pay to be part of a consortium for a new piece if in two years from now we could just pay for the rental of the score in parts mm -hmm. and engage you then? And my answer to him was, well, there's a very good reason why your orchestra should do it. Not only because their name appears in the conductor's score forever, but it's good for the community. It shows that you are being proactive in having your orchestra part of the creation of a new work. It also smiles upon the uh, donors, mm -hmm. uh, local grants, state grants, federal grants, when they see that you're part of something bigger than your own community, but right. of a large national consortium mm -hmm. or global in some respects, they tend to want to give you money for other things because they see that you're out of the box. Right. And they ended up participating in the project. But uh, there are good reasons for doing it. Mm -hmm. It also cultivates new music, which is very important. Absolutely. And somebody has to pay for it. And if they're going to perform it, why not be part of the funding process. Mm -hmm. reason why I went to all these conductors is because I felt it would be more economical to have a lot of orchestras co-commission a new work and pay less than try to go after three, four, or five orchestras mm -hmm. that would have to pay more that may say, no, we can't afford it. Right. So it was more work, but in the end, it was good for all. So everybody. a combination of being willing to tackle new works, bring them to new audiences, uh, and being an organizer, being a central figure, a leader, 
is really central. Now, is it possible for somebody who doesn't have that personality to, to go out there and put themselves out there and somebody who maybe just loves the traditional repertoire, what chances do they have? Is it just really uh, difficult to, to have a traditional, what is deemed a traditional career? Because as you well know, the conservatories are training people to play Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky and Brahms and Beethoven and all the rest of it. And there are countless pianists playing this standard repertoire on a very high level. What do you suggest for these people? You know, with technology, you don't have to necessarily pick up a telephone anymore. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be assertive that way if it's not in your personality. You can't make somebody do something they feel uncomfortable or it's unnatural for them to do. And they have to want it. You mm -hmm. have to want it enough to make yourself do it. But mm -hmm. you could send emails. Right. Or you could go on a social media and mm -hmm. find conductors or orchestras and post things. And you know, with technology today, the sky's the limit. And you could f reach more people without having to speak to them if you need to. Uh, but at some point, you have to be able to speak. You know? <laughs> it helps, doesn't it? Well, I was always <laughs> a shy person when I was young. Mm -hmm. Very inhibited. Mm -hmm. But over time, I overcame that because I felt I had to. Necessity. You have to. Absolutely. So, um, by the way, what is a, a good website for people who want to hear your music, find out where you're performing next? What is a, if you want to share that with everyone, I'm sure people are going to want to hear you play. <laughs> yeah, uh, my website is just my name, jeffreybeagle.com. YouTube has many different videos, either at home practicing or in concert. Mm -hmm. um, I don't keep a calendar on my website actually, but if people Google me, they should be able to find a list of concerts. You check the, usually the last month, or uh, I usually check every 24 hours to see if there's anything <laughs> that I need to respond to. Right. But usually you could find concerts mm -hmm. listed. Great. And is there anything else you'd like to share with people out there about the life of a concert pianist in the 21st century and what you have carved out and advice to anybody who's is up and coming and wants to be able to uh, make a life in music as you have done for yourself. Sure. I mean, when I was younger, the dream was you have to play with the biggest orchestras and the biggest concert halls and have the biggest recording contracts. And now you could record, put your own recordings out. Uh, there are venues popping up now all over the country in the most unsuspecting places that mm -hmm. you could perform. And there's collaborations happening now amongst the various uh, performing arts communities. Mm -hmm. You could do a program in an art museum uh, based on the artwork that may be in that museum. Right. Uh, you could collaborate with dance. You could do more collaborations in smaller venues. Mm -hmm. And I think you'll see more performing arts series sprouting up here and there. That's right, the, uh, the fusion of different styles, which has proliferated world music and such. Yes. But more than that, you're talking about actually different art forms coming together, which I think is a beautiful concept, something that many composers explored earlier, but we're now finally, technologically, it's possible to do this Absolutely. much more effectively than Alexander Scriabin, of course, had a vision of a complete multimedia experience that he was frustrated never being able to really achieve. So that is great advice, Jeffrey, and it's, it's been a real pleasure having you here. Thank and you. Uh, we look forward to your performance tomorrow yes. uh, with the Pacific Symphony and all of you out there. 
It's uh, look for jeffreybeagle.com. You want to hear some phenomenal performances. One of the world's great pianists, as you will discover when you listen to his performances. Thank you so much for coming here and joining us here. Thank you. At livingpianos.com and virtualsheetmusic.com.